This past week, um, Kathy and I were in our living room, and uh, we were just both sitting there reading books, and it was just a nice, quiet evening, and she's uh, in her wingback chair, and I'm on the couch, and I'm sitting there, and you know, I've been trying to get in shape a little bit, and the doing the stuff at the dog park's been helping. We're out there doing manual labor most Saturdays, and I've uh, been bike riding, and Kathy and I go for walks in the evening, and just trying to to not be quite so uh, out of shape. But as we sat there doing nothing but sitting on the couch reading a book, I yawned, and I yawned really, really large, and I got a cramp in my neck from yawning, and I. Th- think that means I'm not being successful at getting into good shape when uh, yawning throws me out. uh, It's telling me something. I don't know what it is, but something. There are several kinds of people in the world. Most of the people that you are going to run into fall into what I would call the category of ordinary. In fact, that's kind of why it's called that. Most people fall into that category of ordinary. They're not too bad, not too great. They're not somebody that's going to let you down in in normal circumstances, but they might not be the person that you got to depend on in really dire circumstances. They're pretty decent. They're pretty dependable. They're not exciting one way or the other. They're not evil. They're not fantastic. They're ordinary. But then there are those other folk. The ones who stand out either being absolutely amazing or for being complete pains in the neck. There are people who, for better or for worse, stand out in our minds. And they stand out for a long time after They aren't even a part of our lives anymore. And my first church, uh, post-internship, it was a tiny, tiny little church. If this church had somebody in every seat in the pews, it would seat 88 people. And that's with the overflow room. And it was usually mostly empty. This church had a, a gentleman in the position of being an elder who should never have been an elder. He was in that position because he had a distinct characteristic about him in the church. He was breathing. And trust me when I tell you that in that church, the church would have been better off with the elders who were dead than this guy being an elder. If you were to look up in 1 Timothy and in Titus, the qualifications for elders, it's got a big long list there, and he met, to my understanding of it, he met three of the qualifications there. He was a husband of one wife. His children, his grown children, were Christians, although I credit that to his wife, because his wife was a wonderful lady. And to my knowledge, he was not a drunkard. But... If you look at all of the other qualifications listed there, the ones who 
the ones that talk about character, the ones that talk about personality, the ones that talk about, you know, things like, uh, just uh, go there and read it. I think this guy may have been the person that Paul had in mind as to who should not be an elder. But he was one of two surviving grown men in the church when I got there, and so he was an elder. And like I said, they'd have been better off with the dead guys. The sad fact is that people like that somehow often tend to end up running things, being in charge of stuff, whether it's in churches or in businesses or government offices. I'm not sure why this happens. Maybe it's because they're pushy and self-centered and they shove their way into positions of authority. I don't know exactly. But I do know that it's nothing new, but we'll get to that, more on that, in just a couple of minutes. The other types are those who have the betterment of others and serving God and their neighbor at heart. These are the things that they strive for. They're the people that you just love to have in your life because they make everything and everyone around them a better place or better person. They make going to work or church or school or wherever it is that you know them from, they make it a better place to go. You look forward to what you're doing with them because it's a relief from the rest of the annoying bits of life. These people often tend to also end up in leadership positions. But it's not because they shove their way there. It's because the other people in their lives see them and, excuse me, and recognize their character, recognize the benefits of having those people in leadership. And either the people in their church or their business or their, uh, in, in government, they are, they're like, this is who we want to be our leaders. This is who we want to have in charge. Sometimes a superior at work will just recognize, hey, this person is a really quality person, and they'll promote them up. And this is nothing new either. From time immemorial, people have wanted to have the outstanding members of their society be leading them, whether it's to be a tribal chieftain or a member of Congress or a leader in the church. The passage of Scripture we're going through today gives examples of both of these types of people. And this passage that we're going to be looking at today was happening so early in the church that the Apostle John was having to deal with it, and he wrote this particular letter all about those two issues. The letter that we refer to as 3 John is a wonderful insight into the world behind the scenes in the first century church. Now, 1 John, there's, you've got the, the letters of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. 1 John is a general letter. It is like a sermon that is for practical teaching things throughout churches. And John wrote this to be given to all the churches in the area where 
where he was and that he had influence over for them to have good teachings within the church. That's 1 John. 2 John is a short letter to a specific church about a specific thing. And it was written to them, meant to be read before the entire congregation. 3 John that we're going over today is a letter that was sent along with 2 John. But where 2 John was intended to be read before the whole church, 3 John is a letter from John to one particular leader in that church. It was a private letter from him to this other man in an attempt to give guidance in the leadership of a church where some problems were going on and where a problem person existed. But John wanted to give this instruction and encouragement to the good leader in that church. This is not only useful for our own potential future use if we should find ourselves in similar circumstances, but there is more in there for us to apply to ourselves. Let's take a quick look at the behind-the-scenes letter that John wrote to a fellow church leader. We're going to go through it a chunk at a time through the letter of 3 John. So if you're not already there, you can follow along above or you can turn in your Bibles to 3 John. We're going to go first through verses 1 through 4. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. In the King James Version, it says that he prays that Gaius may prosper and be in good health even as his soul prospers. Now, how can somebody's soul prosper? How does that happen? Or how do we have things go well with our soul? This is, I believe, referring to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit working on us in his act of sanctification. Sanctification is both a once and ongoing thing. Sanctification is that thing that the Holy Spirit does with us first at our baptism when we accept Christ, we are sanctified in that we are made holy by the act of Christ. But it is also an ongoing thing where the Holy Spirit continues to work on us throughout our Christian walk, making us more and more Christ-like as we go. This is, I believe, what he's talking about when he says that it may go well with your soul. John knows that this good man, Gaius, is a God-loving, God-fearing Christian man, and his prayer is that he continues in this development. And he isn't just wishing this in a theological sense, as in, Boy, it's a good thing when Christians continually get better. But it's in a personal, almost but not quite self-serving 
manner. This man is one of his children in the faith. John, it would appear, had led Gaius to Christ, and it just brings him personal satisfaction. He rejoices greatly at hearing that it's happening. As he says, hearing this about his children, his spiritual children, is his personal greatest joy. And you know what? I think this is true with all of us about uh, either our real, especially with our real, but also with our spiritual children. I don't think there's anything that gives greater joy to a parent, a Christian parent, than to see their children growing up in the Lord and becoming good Christian young men and women. That's just something that everyone looks forward to. And it's also something that's a heartache for people when it doesn't happen. Verses 5 through 8. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. It would appear that the brothers mentioned in verse 3 who came to John with a good report about Gaius had been financially helped by him. They had gone there and Gaius had financially helped them as they went out, even though he didn't know them personally. He knew they were sent by John and they were going out as missionaries into the Gentile world. Now when... When you're sharing the gospel with non-believers, it's always a good thing to not, as you do that, be asking them for money because people then just think you're one of these scammers who's trying to get money from them. And so, as has been the practice since the beginning and is still a practice today, generally speaking, when missionaries go out among non-believers, it is other believers who help support them so they don't have to be asking the non-believers that they're preaching to for assistance. And John commends him for doing this and says, when you're doing this, you are joining with them in their work. Even though he stays there in his town doing whatever it is that he does, he has a part of their ministry by helping to finance them. And it is the same with you and I today. So far, the letter's been all positive. It's been, hey, I am really glad to hear these things about you. You're doing a great job. But now John is going to get into the problem. It's just one problem. But it's been my experience that a church of 140 can be just about wrecked by one or two problem people if it goes left unchecked. We see warnings of this from Peter, from Paul, from James, probably from Jude. It seems like he's also warning about that. So this isn't something that happens super rare, 
but it's also not super common. Verses 9 and 10, just these two verses here, it says, I have written something to the church. He's making reference to uh, the letter of, of 2 John. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. John has sent his other letter, 2 John, along with this one. But he's concerned that it won't even be allowed to be presented in the church to the whole congregation because there's this man here named Diotrephes who is a pompous blowhard. This ESV says he likes to put himself first. The King James says, who loves preeminence. Now every time that I see the term preeminence in theology, it only has one legitimate application. The preeminence of Christ. So, for John to say that this guy loves preeminence, that is about the harshest rebuke that I can think of. He is trying to put himself in the place of Christ. I'm the boss. I'm in charge. What I say is what's important. Nobody else has anything important to say. That's what John is saying about this guy, Diotrephes. This guy is so full of self-import that he won't even recognize the authority of John. Think about that. That's John the Apostle, the best friend of Jesus while he was here on earth. Can you imagine the nerve of this guy? Not only did John know Jesus personally and learn directly from him, but he was appointed by Jesus Christ to be the apostle, to be the person who's going out and making disciples, and he is given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's passing this to the apostles as, go out and speak for me. The apostles, when they write, they are literally passing on the words of God. He's writing this letter. It is scripture. And Diotrephes is like, yeah, I don't think we need to listen to you. If you read the Restoration Herald, the magazine that we have here at the church, every single month, there's an article in there by Dr. Jack Cottrell. Cottrell has written, I don't know how many books, I have 21 of them. I counted them up this week. I have 21 of his books on my shelves. I haven't read through all of them yet, but I'm working. He was the teacher. Went, well, let me back up a little bit. My mentor was Dr. Don Campbell. Dr. Don Campbell, when he was working on his master's degree, was the student of Dr. Jack Cottrell. 
Cottrell's been teaching since nine years before I was born. If Jack Cottrell walked in here and wanted to share a message, and I got up and said, wait, 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 wait. This guy ain't talking. I don't want to hear from him. You don't need to hear from him. We ain't listening to him. If I did that, that would not compare even by half what this guy at Diotrephes is doing by telling them that John the Apostle is not to be listened to, nor can he have any authority in their church. Diotrephes likes to put himself first. People under the control of selfish sin are often mind-bogglingly ignorant. He even goes so far as to badmouth John, although we don't know in what exact way. But John calls it talking wicked nonsense. And he says that if he's able to come, he's going to put it straight. I don't think I'd want to be Diotrephes if John showed up, because I think John would kind of lay down the law and let him know what's going on. He says he's going to tell the whole church what this guy is up to. But John doesn't end his letter on a down note. That's only two verses out of 15 that he's talking about this negative thing going on. He immediately goes back to teaching and he uses this unfortunate incident of Diotrephes as a teaching moment for the Christian man who is his beloved child in the faith. Verses 11 and 12. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Demetrius is apparently the guy who's bringing this letter to him and is a fellow servant with John. We don't really know a lot about Gaius other than he seems to be an influential, godly man in the church there. Not only does John want to warn him about the dangers of Diotrephes, but to warn him off perhaps from the chance of falling in with him. Gaius could potentially, especially if he's rather young, he could fall under this wicked man's influence. Especially if that man has, as he seems to, a lot of influence over the rest of the church. Apparently, he has sufficient power to throw people out of the church itself. Perhaps he's wealthy and the church meets at his home. We really don't know. John says to him, basically, See that guy, Diotrephes? Don't be that guy. Don't follow along and imitate what evil people are doing, even if they seem to be powerful and influential and the guy that everybody looks up to. If they're doing things that are wrong, don't follow along with them. He's pointed to this other example. Follow along with this guy. He's spoken of well by the truth itself. He's basically saying that anyone with good judgment can see this man 
this guy that he's sending to him and know that he is doing what is true and right. Follow his example. All of this is true today. If you have the guidance of the Holy Spirit and you're going to see the fruit which people's lives bear, and you should, if you're looking for it, you're going to see the fruit that they bear. This morning in Sunday school with the uh, older kids, we went over Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 where you can know a tree by its fruit. And John is telling him that you should be able to look and see the truth itself in people. If you have the Holy Spirit guiding you and you are a person who is discerning, who is looking at things not for how do they appear, does this person appear to be important, does this person appear to be influential, but if we're looking at them and their lives and seeing what is truly there, we should be able to tell the testimony of the truth itself about a person and say, that's not the guy you want to follow. This is the guy you want to follow. John then closes out the letter with a desire to see Gaius face to face and a plea to pass on his greetings to the other good people of the church. But in this letter, we get a glimpse of the relationship, teaching, and personal guidance from an apostle of Jesus Christ to his student, his child in the faith. He's overjoyed at this young man's, I presume young man's, continued spiritual growth, his sanctification, He's encouraging of his righteous and godly behavior, which we really need to do, folks. If if you see somebody who's doing something good, we have a tendency to just think in our minds, well, that's what they should be doing. Do you know what we should be doing? If you see somebody doing something good, encourage them. Say a word to them. Say, hey, that's a really good thing you're doing. Say, hey, I noticed that you're doing this. Say, hey, I just want to thank you because I appreciate what you're doing. We should be encouraging to people who are doing good. He tells us, he's telling this young man that. He's saying, you're doing great, but continue to do so. And he gives him a little bit of a warning, the danger of slipping off and copycat, the, being a copycat of the behavior of people who aren't who we should be following. We live in a fallen, sin-filled world. It was the same then as it is now. And John is holding up an example to follow. All of this is applicable to the life of every Christian today which is why I believe this personal letter from an apostle to an individual, his student, has been preserved for us today. You know, people might say, you know, this was supposed to be a private letter. He wrote that public letter to the church. This was supposed to be a private letter. Why is this in Scripture? Because it's applicable to our lives. We don't just look at it and say, okay, well, that's interesting. That's what's going on then. 
I don't know how that applies to me now. This is how it applies to us now. Christ is delighted to see us walking in the truth and growing spiritually. But there are always going to be those around us who stand against goodness. Some are in the world. Some are disguised as Christians. We need to look out for them. Discern who is good and who is evil and choose who to imitate. The ones who are influencing the world, we need to choose the ones who are not drawing people away from the truth, but the ones who are drawing people to the truth of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of churches out there. One of the, one of the interesting things that the churches want in a preacher is that they're kind of a dynamic speaker. There's somebody who can just hold your attention. There's somebody who can just draw you in and just hold you there and make you go, oh, yeah, ooh. Do you know what the Apostle Paul said about himself in more than one instance? I won't use his exact words, but I can sum it up for you this way. The Apostle Paul, speaking of himself, said, I'm a boring speaker, but when I speak, I speak the truth of Jesus Christ. It is more important for us to look to people to follow who are drawing people to Christ than if they have pizzazz and a good showmanship and whatever it is, someone who's influential in the world, someone who's just, wow, that that person is just awesome. Well, are they or are they just a good public image? What's their life like? What are they really like? This letter is telling us, look beyond that sort of thing. See this guy over here? Don't be that guy. See this guy over here? Be that guy. Because Jesus Christ died for our sins, not so that we could then go off and follow someone who preaches or teaches or lives their life. They don't have to be a preacher or a teacher, just somebody in our lives who's living their life against God. We need to look for an example to the person, whoever they are. Your grandmother, your friend from work, whomever it is, who is an example of Christ walking and follow them as our sanctification is worked throughout our lives by the Holy Spirit and we strive daily to become more and more like Jesus Christ. The praise team is going to come and lead us. This isn't the normal type of sermon where I end with uh, a, a call of that nature. My call to you today is look for the person who looks like Christ. Follow them. Please stand as we sing.